Sports Professor Rick Harrow, and we are on the record. Every week, this podcast will take you inside the $1.3 trillion business of sports, the top deal-making issues, the top tech issues, and the top social responsibility issues, plus a blockbuster interview with someone who you might not have heard from in the world of sports, but having a profound effect on its impact. Let's get started. Sports Professor Rick Haro inside the $1.3 trillion business of sports, and you're on the record with all of the inside information in law, administration, marketing, business, everything involved in sports, behind the scenes, and on the record. Our first segment weekly, the opening drive, the four top stories of the week, one through four. Number one, Madden's NFL video game remained strong in October. The sales, Madden 24, came in at number four, holding serve for September. FC 24 dropped from three to fifth in sales, and a pair of new games, UFC 5 and NHL 24, both from EA, finished in the top ten. UFC coming in 7th, NHL 8th, NBA 2K24 from 2K Sports saw a significant drop in physical sales going from number 6 in September to 13th in October. And 2K doesn't report digital sales, so we'll have to see. Microsoft racing game Forza Motorsport debuted at number 17 for the year. EA Sports 24 is 12th in terms of innovation. The bottom line is... At the top of the charts every year, the running of the Madden franchise, EA Sports has a deal with the NFL extended through 2026, reportedly worth about a billion and a half. What a deal. That's number one. Number two, it's a big deal as well. The Titans and Nissan officially agree to a new 20-year stadium rights deal for the extension plus the building of the new stadium. It's $2.1 billion and is expected to open in 2027. And Nissan extends the sponsorship that's been in place since Nissan entered the current stadium in downtown Nashville almost 10 years ago in 2015. Terms not disclosed, but prior to the new venue being built, the immediately east of the 24-year-old current facility, it includes a roof, which means Final Fours, Super Bowls, and a whole host of events. Nissan technology showcases, and they also get a presence in team-owned and operating media and have committed to support a to-be-determined philanthropy platform throughout the Titans One community benefit. The league's newest stadiums don't usually wait long to host the Super Bowl, by the way. AT&T opened in 2009, Levi's 2014, U.S. Bank 2016, Mercedes-Benz 2017, SoFi 2020, hosted the Super Bowl at the end of their second seasons. Lucas Oil, 2008, Met Stadium at Life, 2010, did so after their fourth Allegiant Stadium opening in February. That's number two. Congratulations to Nissan, congratulations to Tennessee, and congratulations to the city of Nashville. Number three, even more important these days when you think about it, FIFA and its $100 million a year Aramco sponsorship, guess what? Saudi Arabia's state-owned oil giant. The newspaper says that the deal will become one of the organization's top-tier partners with FIFA and Aramco. Contract lasting until 2034, the same year Saudi Arabia hosts the Men's World Cup. 
By that point, the arrangement expected to be worth up to $100 million a year, maybe even more. If confirmed, it would be one of Aramco's biggest sports sponsorship deal. The Saudi oil giant already has existing ties to cricket via partnerships with the International Cricket Council and the Indian Premier League. Its sponsorship portfolio also includes agreements in the fields of both Formula One and women's golf. Saudi Arabia, the only remaining candidate to host the 2034 World Cup, it's obviously theirs, following the awarding of the 2030 World Cup to six host countries, FIFA established the nations only having weeks to prepare their bid, and it only could be held in a country in Asia or Oceania. And the Saudi bid announced swiftly after FIFA's announcement. It quickly gained the support of the Asian Football Confederation. A rival bid led by Australia eventually scrapped before the deadline of October 31, with the Football Australia chief James Johnson admitting his surprise at FIFA fast-tracking the bidding process. Fast-tracking oil money? No. Fast-tracking the bidding process? Expected. That's number three. Number four, Everton docked 10 points for breaching the Premier League financial rules. They've been deducted those points by the Independent Commission after being found to have breached the uh, Premier League financial rules. The soccer's top flight referred to as the Toffees to the Organization Commission in March for alleged breaches of its profitability and sustainability rules in the period ending 2021-22 season. The rules allow clubs to lose a maximum of UK 105 million pounds, about 130 million bucks, over a three-year period, or face sanctions. Everton dropped to 19th place in the Premier League table on four points following the deduction, issued a statement confirming their intention to appeal against the sanction. The Premier League said in a statement published on its official website during the proceedings, the club admitted it was in breach of the PSR's profitability and sustainability rules for that period, but the extent of the breach remained in dispute. Well, they figured out the extent. And now this is one of those penalties, by the way, where we say that there's no penalty against violating the salary cap here. Well, this is the equivalent to the salary cap there. And boy, they're strict. And why wouldn't they be? Because it all depends on profitability, Man City, Man U, Arsenal, and the like. This intends in its own way to level the playing field. Well, we enter into a glorious time for college football. And by the way, as we've said a couple of times, we nearly have 800 colleges and universities playing football at all levels. From the top level, which is Georgia, down to the NAIA, with 12 programs being added in 23 and beyond, nearly 16,000 high schools, nearly 3,000 high schools with girls programs, and obviously nearly a million one high school football players. Graduation rate, which we're most proud of, of football subdivision students, the NCAA says, is 82%. And 5,600 college football student-athletes have returned to earn their degrees in the last 10 years. One of the architects behind these numbers and the mandate, Steve Hatchell, Orange Gold Committee, Southwest Conference, Rodeo, And now the head, well-placed, really appropriate, of the National Football Foundation. Steve has so many things on his plate, and he does them so well. Here's Steve Hatchell. The first thing I wanted to mention is he's a Buffalo himself, the University of Colorado. But nobody knows, because Steve Hatchell is the 
National Football Foundation president, basically the guru of forward-thinking football. And I really mean that. We'll get into this. But he also uh, was a scholar-athlete at the University of Colorado in skiing and today has been involved in the Rocky Mountain Intercollegiate Skiing Association. So so uh, what, what was it like uh, being uh, on no hill you couldn't tame did that prepare you for the rough and tumble college football administrative life? Well, um, uh, just to, just to set all that uh, properly, the great the great part for me was at the University of Colorado. So I was a scout team quarterback and a manager on the football team, and uh, I grew up in Colorado, so I, I knew all about skiing and uh, had tried to do all the things I could in ski racing. And, um, and so I was the information director for the Rocky Mountain Intercollegiate Ski Association and worked a couple of Olympic games. And uh, the University of Colorado ski team was also the U.S. ski team for the most part when I started to go to school at uh, CU. So great people like uh, uh, Jimmy Huga, Moose Barrows, Billy Kidd, et cetera. Bill Marolt, who went on to be a great coach, great athletic director. They were all on that team. And that was the U.S. ski team, which was it was a special time and uh, they were great, uh, great people. They were the first ones to win medals for the United States in skiing. And it was a wonderful atmosphere, wonderful group of people. And unfortunately, we, I don't get a chance to see them all uh, like I used to. But uh, it was it was really a fantastic time. But I had both feet for the most part, Rick, in the football program. And Eddie Crowder was my coach. And uh, we had wonderful, wonderful coaches who went on many. Some went into the Hall of Fame. Uh, that were on our staff. Well, and, and and at CS in Colorado, yes. But then uh, the bio says you were director of sports info at Colorado State, uh, the the rival school, I guess, in the in the mid seventies for a couple of years, and and then the associate commissioner of the Big Eight, seventy seven through eighty three, a, a six year stint, uh, and then eighty three to eighty seven, the Metro Collegiate Athletic Conference. We'll get into the Orange Bowl and others, but all of this is incredible diversity at a fairly young age. Did you decide that you wanted to maximize diverse experience or or you couldn't hold a job? Well, what, what, was, what was the deal? I think a lot of people would tell you it would be the uh, the latter, frankly, you know, that every five or six years, you know, you move on. Well, I one of the great things, Rick, that I can say is that I have been in, incredibly blessed, incredibly blessed. Um, I was going to work for BBDO Advertising after I graduated from Colorado. And having been so close to the athletic director, the football coach, Eddie Crowder, um, he asked me to stay one year. He was uh, now the athletic director and football coach, which was, uh, you know, the, the way people did the planning back in those days. And he asked, he said, hey, I need my staff. And we were very close. And uh, he said, I need you to stay one year. Well, one year became five. Uh, a lot of people didn't think I could be hired away around the country. People would call and say, hey, would you be interested in this or that? And so I went to Colorado State as the information director, uh, director of external activities. And uh, within nine months, I'd had some really good offers. And the best thing professionally that I ever uh, experienced was going to work at the Big Eight for Chuck Ninas. And um, that was a that was a great launching point. So I've had a chance to do all these things at a at a very young age, which I'm very blessed. Well, but when you look at the chronology of where uh, the Big 12 is today, you know, you are front and center in a lot of that. Obviously, the Big Eight, 
but then for two years, the Southwestern Conference, and then later on afterward, obviously the Big 12 in Dallas as its first commissioner. You can give us a snapshot of conference musical chairs from that first seat in the middle where everybody tries to sit on that seat. Uh, it's 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 a, just an it's an incredible perspective you bring to the, to the table, yeah. It what it what it boils down to is uh, you know you hate to put it in crass terms Rick but it's money. And um, when I I was at the Southwest Conference and the Southwest Conference and the Big 8 had been talking about scheduling opportunities working together before I got there. And then the College Football Association television agreement that controlled um, a lot of things in, in terms of television, that was not extended. People disappeared on that, which meant that each conference had to form its own television agreement. And what that meant was the Big Eight that was about 7.5% of the population in the country in the Southwest Conference, which is all in Texas, they didn't have enough to really command the type of television dollars uh, that the others like the Big Ten or the SEC would command now that they're all on their own. But if you put both of them together, now you got 15% of the country television. You had a lot of impact because you had great programs in the Big Eight. Now you're adding Texas. You're adding the Texas A&M, the whole state of Texas. You had some power. You had some impact. And we were able to go out and get some real strong television dollars and exposure uh, by combining the two together. So when you look at expansion, I don't think it's just for the heck of it. Um, uh, it's it's to generate revenue. It's to generate a lot of enthusiasm. And if you look at how all of these things have, have uh, developed over the time, uh, it's all about the revenue that you can bring in, the exposure that you can get, not just for football, but all the other sports. So I, I don't think it's done willy-nilly. I don't think there's a whole lot on the horizon uh, about that. If you can generate more money and you get more exposure, you're definitely going to do it. Let's kill the conference musical chairs issue now, and then we'll come back to a few of these other college football issues later on. Uh, so a lot of people, pundits especially, think that the chancellors at uh, USC and UCLA wake up one morning and say, hey, let's go. Let's go to the Big 12 or Big 10 and let's get some television revenue. Your perspective you just mentioned that doesn't happen overnight. It's 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 reams of study material and uh, three-dimensional chess and relationships. So react to you know those two West Coast schools and now what the uh, what George and the Pac Pac-12 are, are are worried about as far as television revenue is concerned. From your perspective of having been on the inside and doing that, I think the uh, I, I find the USC UCLA. Uh, development with the Big Ten to be very fascinating, find it interesting. But you can't just put those two out there without saying that Fox Television is a real player in this. Uh, Fox Television, if you go back and look, they've always been on the creative side of things that step in and say, hey, we're going to we're going to do NFL football. We're going to we're going to do big things. And when they get involved, they get involved in, in a very two fisted manner. And um, uh, I think that they were some of the key if not the key element to making that work in the Big Ten. And now you look at uh, the position that Fox has with the Big Ten conference. And as a conference, former conference commissioner, I am I would be elated to be the conference commissioner of the Big Ten because now you've got NBC, CBS, you've got Fox, you've got your windows all tied up with major opportunities to, to showcase, your, showcase your football television. 
And Fox is a big part of that. They've got several different window opportunities. They've got money. Obviously, there's details to be worked out, scheduling, and how do you fit in games and different time zones during uh, during the week. But uh, over, overall, it's a uh, I think it's a very aggressive and and smart move. What do I do about about bowls? Well, let me let me run the Orange Bowl committee you know, for a while, uh, eighty-seven to ninety-three. Let me bring FedEx into the fold. Uh, let me look at. Uh, my Bowl Alliance uh, uh, experience for six years as that head and bring it all uh, there. So give me your perspective then and now about uh, running a bowl committee. Well, I didn't necessarily want to be a bowl person. And um, I was uh, commissioner of the Metro Conference and it doesn't exist any longer. But um, if, if people go back and look, uh, the Metro Conference was a one of the top two or three basketball conferences in the whole country. We had Louisville, Memphis State. It was Memphis State at the time, Cincinnati, Virginia Tech. Uh, Steph Curry's dad played at Virginia Tech when I was there. Florida State, South Carolina, Tulane, Southern Miss. So we were really good. Uh, we won the 86 Final Four uh, in Dallas. Memphis State went the next year. Uh, Southern Miss, of all things, Southern Miss had a really nice team and a good coach. Went to New York and won the 50th anniversary of the NIT. And uh, we had terrific basketball and we had terrific coaches. And um, so when I got the call to go to the Orange Bowl, uh, the Orange Bowl guys said that uh, their case made to me was, we want somebody that didn't grow up in the Orange Bowl family because their executive directors had all had ties to the Orange Bowl, wanted someone from the outside, wanted a title sponsor for the football game. They wanted a title sponsor for their tennis tournament and the uh, on a worldwide basis, the Junior Orange Bowl Tennis Tournament is one of the great um, athletic programs for the whole world. Anybody that's ever played on on uh, World Cup tennis uh, at, at the highest level has gone through the, the Junior Orange Bowl. And um, I found that to be intriguing. Um, I found it to be intriguing to run big events. And uh, I like the Orange Bowl guys. I think, Rick, the Orange Bowl guys, the members, when I got there, um, without a doubt, and I have no hesitation, on this, these are the smartest, uh, strongest people that I have I have ever been around, and they were committed to making football better. They, they were in it for all of the right reasons, and it was fun to work with them. So we set sail to go get FedEx, and that was a sponsorship that lasted for 18 years. Uh, we changed our television agreements, and uh, then we brought uh, – Rolex on as a, as a sponsor for the tennis tournament. And it wasn't just for the Orange Bowl, but the Rolex sponsorship was worldwide. It was for all of the big, uh, the big tournaments. And um, so it was fun. And then uh, they asked while I was doing that to be the chairman of the bowl, what was called the Football Bowl Association at the time. And how do we homogenize our look? You know, there weren't 40 bowl games back then. There were far fewer. And how do we... Um, how do we make it look like we're we're a big part of college football, and how do we do a good job with the selection of teams? And and uh, then just continuing on, we were faced with the challenge that when I was at the Orange Bowl, there were a lot of independents. Notre Dame was an independent, Penn State was an independent, Florida State, Miami. So if we had a great team from the Big Eight Conference that we had under contract, which we always did, we'd have the opportunity to get great teams that were independents to come in and play. So I was there six years. We had four national championships within a six-year span of time. The Big Eight champion was always fantastic. 
And then when you'd bring in uh, Miami, you bring in Florida State, bring in Notre Dame, you could have these great games. But then uh, Florida State said, and the Atlantic Coast Conference said, yeah, we might have a marriage here. Let's put these two together. So the Atlantic Coast Conference did not have a bowl tie-up. And then we sat down with uh, Florida State, sat down with the Atlantic Coast Conference and said, hey, if we put a coalition together where your champion would play in one of these great New Year's games, would you do that? So we'd have that flexibility that we had if they were an independent. And so we created the uh, the bowl coalition uh, alliance, whatever you want to call it initially, that helped us with our scheduling to make sure that we had very meaningful you know, matchups as we moved ahead. As a Miamian who can forget uh, Howard Schellenberger, uh, Kenny Calhoun, uh, Jim Kelly, uh, all of those folks, Miami, Nebraska, that national championship game. And there were others, obviously, and that was a big deal. And they are the smartest bowl people you know. And I'm saying that not just because I, I live in South Florida as well. So let's talk about the National Football Foundation for a second. Uh, you know, your your mandate, as we uh, learned, uh, we just uh, attended a, a conference in, in Dallas with the Division One athletic directors. But when you look at the football by the numbers uh, material that you were involved in, you have 773 colleges and universities playing football at all levels. Uh, NCAA Division One, Three, Two, Three, and NAIA as well. You got twelve that are going to be starting. You got fifteen thousand or so high schools in the U.S. You got twenty five hundred women's tackle programs. You got a big job. Uh, first of all, how do you generate consensus among all of that? Uh, I would ask you what the future of college football governance under Charlie Baker is. We can talk about that as well. But you know, give people a, a, a snapshot of the NFF. Uh, the NFF and, and uh, the unfortunate part of this, as we talk, is we don't have a we don't have an elevator speech when people say, "What is the NFF?" Our, our whole title is National Football Foundation and College Hall of Fame. So we're 76 years old. Uh, we just celebrated a, a great uh, milestone for us a year ago. And we were created by people who really cared about football. General Douglas MacArthur from his Army days, Red Blake, the legendary Army coach, guys like Vince Lombardi coached for Red, uh, Red Blake. That's, that's how significant he was. Tom Landry, uh, Vince Lombardi, they coached for Red Blake. And then the great sports writer, uh, that, that it, we, we just had this great heritage. And the whole idea is that we're told is uh, protect the game, um, promote what's going on, uh, and, and preserve the history of the game. So our group, our guys created the College Football Hall of Fame in 1952. And um, uh, right away, they embraced uh, uh, the, the whole race issue. If you look at the first Hall of Fame classes that the National Football Foundation had, they put African-Americans in that Hall of Fame right from the start. And there's a couple that they put in right away that never went into the Pro Football Hall of Fame until just the last 10 or 15 years ago. So our guys were very aggressive about that, very aggressive about promoting the game. And um, uh, the, the numbers that you cite, and we talk about this as uh, football by the numbers, um, it's very easy to take on the sport. And there's a lot of people that would say you play football, if you wore a helmet, you're going to have mental and, and uh, health issues for the rest of your life. You can get hurt playing football, uh, but a lot of us played football. A lot of us wore a helmet and we think that uh, we're still very strong into the future. And what we do at the National Football Foundation, and we're led by the greatest example of all about what you can do in life 
even after you play college and football, college and, and pro football is Archie Manning. Archie Manning is a fantastic father. He's a fantastic husband. He's a fantastic leader. And um, uh, through that example of Archie and the people that are on our board, like Ronnie Lott, Lynn Swan, Lincoln Kennedy, Archie Griffin, the only two-time Heisman Trophy winner, etc. And um, the, the whole idea is to show that you can play the game and you can go on and be a, a fantastic leader. So when you bring on the issues, when I say you, meaning people that like to challenge it, uh, we'd say you better have your facts in, in gear. Uh, the graduation rate for college football players is higher than it is for the student body in general around the country. Right now, uh, as, as we talk, uh, it's a growth sport on campuses. There are football programs being added every year. And uh, these are to schools that uh, feel that if they have a football team, they get better enrollment. And uh, this has been a growth uh, pattern now for the last 15 years. And we put these numbers out all the time. And, um, and we like to showcase because the negativity gets to be a focus. If there's 81,000 guys playing college football in any given year, there's only about 0.6 or 0.7% that get drafted or signed as a free agent to the NFL. That means that 99.4, 99.3% are going on to do other things. And they go on to do great things. Uh, we have a database in our office of 6,000 people that are all walks of life. You want to talk about Mark Harmon on NCIS, terrific quarterback at UCLA. His dad was a Heisman Trophy winner. We have military leaders. We have people that are uh, leaders in education military leaders. We have uh, political figures, great business leaders who will tell you, um, hey, I'm where I am because I, what I learned in football and all of the aspects of football. So it's up to us to promote the good in the game all the time. It's up to us to uh, continually look at things that aren't negative and say we can make a difference with football. And um, I, I think our guys, um, our board is very successful at that. Uh, one issue is gaming, gambling, just because it's capturing a lot of the headlines. Uh, is there a, I know there's a lot of discussion about the 21-year-old, the limit, Senator Blumenthal's letters, all of those issues. Are we in a position where we think leadership will be able to uh, control and create a process for uh, gaming in a, in a relevant way across the board now in the future? Um, really big question, and I'm not sure I've got a great answer for you, Rick. I think that uh, gambling, having been a conference commissioner, you get worried about it at all levels. And you look at all of the elements from officiating to, you know, everything that could be impacted. You say, hey, you better wade in on this and you better figure it out and you better have a good level of communication. So we're, we're hoping that in the next steps, Rick, that there's a strong effort to have good education. The grab bag segment is filled with facts this week from the top tech, top gambling, and top philanthropy. So let's get to it. Tech issues number one FanDuel adds Genius Sports' unique BetVision technology to its sports book. The innovation comes equipped with in game stats, integrated odds, graphic overlays in a single stream to provide real time live wagering opportunities. The new agreement with Genius Sports enhances the partnership. Previously included FanDuel's access to NFL official league data. The company said 54% of wagers made by bettors were in-play bets. 84% of bets made by streamers came from in-play wagering. 
In partnership with FanDuel, we're proud to lead a new era of sports betting experiences across North America, they said. And obviously, they tout BetVision as a success, seeing its sports betting revenue rise 34% year over year in the third quarter. And only a matter of time before a big-time sports book jumped on board with the technology company that also provides data to media and sports clients across the country. FanDuel has greatly helped parent company Flutter obtain a 47% market share in the U.S. They've been so successful that Flutter is planning to list the operator on the New York Stock Exchange in the first quarter of 2024. That's tech number one. Tech number two, the Broncos use CrowdSync LED bracelets inside the activation process to increase fan engagement. They light up Empower Field at Mile High in celebration of its annual Enhanced Sports and Entertainment Venue Salute to Service game with the help of CrowdSync. Seed for the activation was planted years ago when CrowdSync produced an on-field halftime display for the Broncos using two- to three-foot diameter LED balls. The sides kept in touch from there, and now CrowdSync returning to Denver to distribute wristbands to the 76,000 fans before the contest. Activation process enabled by an on-site CrowdSync operator who controls the wristbands from a single lighting console. How about that for pressure? And the bottom line is a wave design, different color designs. The fan experience is primary. And they're also walking away with a cool souvenir memento from the game, spending a couple hundred bucks and you don't want to go to games frequently. This is a way to capture it, not only on your phone, but walking away from something unique and different. It's obviously a win-win for all concerned. That's tech issue number two. Number three, ON partners with Jaguar to Jaguars to integrate the artificial intelligence chat platform into its team website and its mobile app. The AI chat platform developer, formerly known as Game On Technology, partnering with the Jaguars to integrate its virtual assistant into the team's website and mobile app. On game day, On's platform assists event guests with logistical queries like venue policies, parking directions, concession logistics, but also provides commerce touchpoints and team information like scores or stats. The company works with notable sports clients, Raiders, Chargers in the NFL, Hornets, Sixers in the NBA, Islanders in hockey, Yankees in baseball, among others. Alex Beckman, the SBJ Power Player of the Year for Fan Experience Technology and the founder, told SBJ that in the realm of ON's NFL partnerships, the Raiders have driven a 21% click-through rate and the Chargers 20% using ON platform this season with the Chargers maintaining a 56% CTR on retail-related links and 37% on ticketing links. Certainly, this is a big deal not only for the fan experience, but for capturing and enhancing the long-term deal in perpetuity. And that's tech issue number three. Let's switch to gambling. We've got two big ones this week. Number one. ESPN Bet wants to challenge the sports gambling duopoly, and what are its chances? The newest U.S. sports book, The Goliath, gets to feel what it's like to be maybe David in certain cases, but they're in 17 states, starting off with about a 2% market share 
of American sports gamblers. The market share comes from that remnants of Penn Entertainment's Barstool, which folded into the $2 billion partnership to license ESPN branding. Penn will pay Disney $150 million annually for the next 10 years and is granting Disney about $500 million in stock warrants to produce Penn shares. The biggest obstacle facing ESPN bet is the U.S. sports betting duopoly of FanDuel and DraftKings, which hold roughly 73% of the country's sports gambling market share, according to a report from Eilers and Kretschik, a gambling expert. Bottom line, next to that, FanDuel, about 39%, DraftKings, 34%, BetMGM, about 9%, Senior Caesar, 6 and others have some advantage. Many think the goal will be difficult to reach, that they can attain a 20% ESPN market share by 2027. Many think it's difficult and impossible. Even 10% would be a success, they say, but do not underestimate ESPN. That's gambling issue number one. How about number two? Bet 365 on the logo now, the baseline aprons and with the Hornets, the first North Carolina team to have a sportsbook deal, a 10-year exclusive arrangement for Bet365, the official mobile sports betting operator, giving the UK-based company access to one of 11 licenses the state is expect to issue next year. The deal comes in time for Bet365 to see its logo on the baseline aprons and basket stanchions at the Spectrum Center for the NBA E-Season Tournament this week and the following weeks. Bet365 also receives advertising and promotion on the team's TV and radio broadcasts, as well as social platforms once sports betting launches. The deal does not include plans for retail, though it could be added as part of the future arena development. The Hornets are the fifth U.S. sports team sponsored by Bet365. The Guardians, Commanders, Rockies, and Spurs. Team's first exclusive deal with the U.S. team and now available in Jersey, Colorado, Ohio, Virginia, Iowa, and Kentucky. The Hornets deep into talks that would have led them to split the company among two or three sponsors. But when the state changed the rules a couple of months ago, set off a scramble among sports properties and sports books and pivot toward exclusivity, an opportunity to align with one particular partner. North Carolina opens under a slightly different dynamic than other states, along with Bet365, which is spent aggressively on advertising and promotion in Ohio and ranks fourth in the state with a 6% share of handle. The online launch of Fanatics in August and ESPN Bet this month could reinvigorate spending. With an over-21 population of just under 8 million people, North Carolina will be the sixth most populous state with legal online sports betting, counting off again, on again in Florida. We don't know, the markets matured, the CEO of Bet365 said. Legal online sports betting can begin in the state as early as January 8, but regulators said that won't happen. Operators are hoping to hit March Madness. The law requires a launch by June 15. The longer they wait, the more money they lose. So look for it to open quickly. And that's sports tech issues one to three. How about good sports? This philanthropic emphasized week 
has some major issues. The first one, the Pan Mass Challenge donates a record $72 million to cancer charity, closing in on the $1 billion number since 1980. The challenge handed over the $72 million to the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, moving the pioneering cross-state bicycle race within sight of the billion dollars raised, raising $972 million for the cancer care issues since 1980, the largest cycle contributor to Dana-Farber since with the Jimmy Fund, total of 6,500 participants cycled up 211 miles across the state for the 44th racing in August. Good for them. Shift to Denver, good sport number two. Thanks to the Denver Nuggets, Storks Championship season last year, 47 local nonprofits able to further their missions to help those in need in Colorado. Cronky Sports Charities, an arm of Cronky Sports Entertainment, gave away 680 grand to those organizations during halftime of the Nuggets and Pelicans. Organizations like Integrated Family Company Services in Inglewood reaped the benefits of the championship playoff run last season. KSC sold tickets to watch parties as well as rally towels to fans. Cronky, the proceeds from those events and sales pooled into the fund going to 47 charities serves its community in many ways. Food pantry among the most heavily relied on by locals as far as crisis. Over 6,000 people per month activating parts of the food budget, putting money toward things people can't help them with, ball tires, medical bills, school supplies, big issues. Finances tight, as a single mother, some would say, but it helped the daughter a lot. That's all you can hope for. And through the celebrations and through the playoffs, through the championships, organizations benefited as well. And Cronky Sports Charities, generous enough to share in that. Helping people with basic needs in life, the things that are often taken for granted, is the sustenance to get them to the next level. The support made a difference. And obviously, Cronky Sports is a huge player in Denver. That's good sport number two. How about number three? Triumph NIL teams with sporting goods stores for charity events. The experienced marketing agency centered on creating NIL for Virginia Tech athletes. They partnered with Academy Outdoors and sports during the grand opening of its Christianburg, Virginia location. Hokie track runners Aiden Clark and Judson Lincoln, softball players Emma Lemley and Emma Ritter, swimmer Anna Summers, and the sprint teams Elise Marola also participated in the event. The bottom line was these events embody the commitment to maximize the opportunity for student-athletes, but also giving back and creating meaningful opportunities for the community. Virginia Tech may lead the way. And finally, philanthropy and golf. We've had Juan Escobar on the first tee. And how about what they're doing in Monterey County? The USGA has given out 72 grants across 30 states to first tee programs in hoping to make the game of golf more inclusive. The first tee program across the country takes a field trip to Pebble Beach and participates in a clinic, something the children probably would never see themselves. They're working with the school district. The first tee, as we have said, 
is great for the game of golf, but as we remember from prior episodes, incredible for curriculum development and incredible for inclusion, also incredible for donation of people in the community more fortunate than others, but also giving an opportunity to people to experience things they may not have ever gotten to experience. So that's our good sports for the week. Last but not least, the three to watch as we continue to look forward, not backward, in the turbulent business of sports. Let's get right to it. Number one, Joe Burrow becomes the co-owner of Pro Volleyball's Columbus Fury. Carrie Walsh Jennings and music star Jason Derulo, co-owners of the Pro Volleyball Federation. The Fury, one of seven franchises to compete next year, two more joining the league in 2025. The league seems to be a uh, capitalized very well. The celebrities seem to be there, joined by his parents, Jimmy and Robin Burrow, as co-owners. Why not bring another pro sports franchise to Columbus? Let's see how it works down the road. That's issue number one to watch. How about number two? Roger Goodell confirms that there will be a game in a new country in 2024. Yeah, Germany's in and England are in. And what is next? Is it Spain or is it Brazil? Sky Sports says we'll know in the next 30 to 45 days. NBC Sports says the Panthers will go to Germany. They're the only franchise with has rights to Germany that haven't had a game there. But yet the bottom line is everybody's looking at Brazil. We've looked at Brazil a while ago with Dolphin folks, and obviously it wouldn't be bad to tap into South America, but Spain may deserve one too, so we'll have to see. That's to be looked at, number two. How about number three? Great one to end on. VAR, Premier League, the opportunities are to expand their world as they go forward, but also to take a look at the entire structure of the Premier League and not only do we have issues regarding how it is dealt, dealt with short-term and long-term, but the chief technology officer of Virgin Media O2 says the health, happiness, and development of children across the UK, really important. Premier League is going to be involved in a lot of that in the future. So let's look for that down the road. And those are our three to watch as we move forward for next week. We'd like to thank Steve Hatchell for lending his National Football Foundation expertise. $1.3 trillion business of sports. You're on the record.